Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, this episode is brought to you by my very own NLP practitioner course. I've been teaching neuro-linguistic programming, or NLP, for nearly 15 years. It is the most powerful tool for communication on the planet, and it can be yours today. For a very limited time, I'm giving away my entire NLP course workbook for free. Go to nlpwithmatt.com. All the patterns, all the tools, and the techniques of NLP in the complete course workbook, the same one that we use to teach our live certification classes, yours free. NLPwithmatt.com. Get it today. Let's get back to the show. Hey, welcome back to The Driven Entrepreneur. And this week, it is all about one thing. The entrepreneur life. Travel. Travel, travel, travel. I'm talking about the, the, the nomad people. I'm talking about someone who starts your business because you want to enjoy the good life. You want to go out and do something fun, you know. Um, I never traveled up until I was, I think, 19 years old. And the first time I really went on a vacation, I sent myself because I was working and making money. And I didn't do much as a kid. And I grew up in the same house. And all of a sudden, I had this weird travel bug. And ever since, I've always enjoyed being that entrepreneur. Since I was 22 years old, I started my first business. And I've loved just being on the road, you know, we, we, well, you know, we're getting into all that stuff. I'll tell you about that. And I want to tell you about my guest this week, uh, Michael Ferguson, what a cool dude. I cannot wait to get in with him. He wrote the book called leave me alone. I'm on vacation, how to avoid the lines, crowds and noise and experience travel your way. And when I met him at a conference just uh, a few months back, I thought, man, this guy has it dialed in. Leave me alone. I'm on vacation. Sometimes you want to party with people. Sometimes you just want to go enjoy yourself. And ultimately, how do you have a vacation without having a vacation? Michael Ferguson, he was born in Great Falls, Montana. He's lived in Colorado Springs, Colorado, since the age of five, taking road trips with his family all throughout the Rocky Mountains and the Midwest areas of the United States. But at the same time, he's also traveled all around. He studied Germany or he studied German while in Colorado Springs. And all of a sudden, he went to go study in Germany, and he lived with a German family for several months. And we're going to get into all that and more, and now he, of course, continues traveling. He got the bug as well, and now I want to talk about his book. Welcome, Michael, to the show. How are you, my friend? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me, Matt. Man, this is uh, it's a great topic. You know, it's something that, you know, in all the, the, the events and, you know, over the last while, it's been really nice to, I don't know, just kind of forget about everything and think about how fun it is to go about and do the things we love to do. You didn't really travel as a kid. And well, tell me about the road trips. Like, did you enjoy that as a kid? Were, were you in that age? I think we're pretty close to the same age. I'm 40. Were you like in the back of the station wagon and doing the family road trips? Or what was that like for you? Yeah, you've just pretty much described it. I'm uh, <laughs> actually... A little bit older. I'm, I'll be 50 next year, but uh, I'm I'm from that generation of kids that grew up in the 70s, where literally, like you said, you know, you'd put uh, the kids in the back of the station wagon. We did have a Pontiac station wagon when I was very young. Wood panels? I don't. Oh yeah, yeah. 
And, um, you know, it amazes me today how we got away with what we got away with, because now they have all these um, rules about, you know, kids up until a certain, I don't think it's a certain age or height, but like a weight have to be all strapped in. And I remember as being like three or four years old, as rolling around in the back of the station wagon. I think my parents would be in big trouble now if they did that today. But uh, we used to, um, the thing is, is my family, uh, my parents are actually from the Chicago area. So most of my extended family, so that's uh, grandparents and aunts, uncles and cousins all lived in Illinois. And my parents moved to the Mountain West uh, shortly before I was born. It was partly because my dad was in the Air Force and he was stationed up in uh, Great Falls, Montana. And uh, that's how I came to be born there. And they uh, fell in love with Colorado. So um, after living a little bit in Arizona for a few years, when I was five years old and started school, we moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado. And this has been my home uh, for the last, oh, geez, like 44 years. So um, because our family lived out in the Midwest, we would take a road trip, usually at least once a year, uh, just to go visit people. So I got to experience the excitement of, you know, riding in a car and seeing all the sights uh, on the way and uh, just getting a sense of how vast our country actually is and um, how varied it is. I mean, um, it really I is, remember, isn't it? I mean, you're yeah, talking yeah. landscape changes and, you know, environmental changes and cultural changes. It, it, it almost feels like money countries, doesn't it? Yeah. In, in fact, um, I would say the one book I read recently that just kind of blew my mind was called American Nations. And I, I can't remember the name of the author at the moment, but um, it basically posits that America is really made up of multiple countries based on how which group of people settled particular areas of the country. So like uh, up in New England, obviously, you've got Yankees. And they have a certain uh, political mindset and they have certain cultural mindset. And then um, in other places, you've got um, sort of the Quakers who settled, you know, more Pennsylvania. And then you have the Tidewater South and the Deep South. And then you've got the West, which was settled by the groups of people in the East who moved West. So you've got the coastal cities of California that are really settled by Yankees and the politics and everything are kind of similar. And then you got the Trans Mountain West, which was the last part to be settled when um, the mining interests and uh, the government and the big corporations moved it because they finally found something valuable there to settle. So um, I really do think of our, our country as being patchwork of different countries, really. Yeah, it is. And so so you traveled a lot within the U.S. And it's funny because I was saying in the intro, you know, when I was a kid, I mean, my, we grew up in Southern California and my parents, you know, we went to Big Bear Mountain like twice, I think, ever. And, you know, no knock on my parents. It's just we didn't do a ton of traveling. There wasn't a lot of extra money and whatnot. But I remember going to Cancun at 19 for my first real vacation. And I sent myself because I was working I thought, man, this is really fun. And I just was like, I want to go see things. When you, how, how old were you when you decided, I want to go see the world? I want to, like, did you ever have a map with tax? Like, was that a goal for you? Or was it just kind of little by little, you just started doing things and noticing stuff? Was that early on or later on? I would on? say so. I would say it was early on. Um, I mean, I can remember as a child, 
my parents got me these um, big National Geographic books, not, not the magazine, but these big hardcover books for kids. And I, and I remember one very distinctly. One was the 50 states, which just goes through facts about all of our 50 states. And then one was the world. And I, I really just fell in love with that book because I would go through and I was really curious about these other countries, what the people were like, how the cultures are different. And um, I did my first international trip when I was uh, 16 in high school. We had a opportunity with a couple other local high schools to have to take a trip out to um, all of the uh, German speaking countries. So it was like a week or so trip where we went to Austria, Germany, Switzerland, and then this tiny little country of Liechtenstein, which is um, a German speaking country as well. And um you know, the book, book the, excuse me, the bug really took hold. And then that's how I ended up um, studying in Germany for a semester, as you mentioned at the beginning. And uh, since then, I've uh, you know gotten married and my wife and I have taken some wonderful trips all over Europe. And then in 2015, we went to uh, Tanzania with my niece. And so we had the experience of doing safari and I got to uh, go with a group of people to climb to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. Come on. I, you know, I, I've been a mountaineer and a climber for 20 years. It's been on my bucket list. Still haven't carved out the time to get out to <laughs> take Mount Kilimanjaro. What is the, what do I want to ask about that? Hold on a second. This is good. Um, when you get there, did you fancy yourself first off? Like, a, were you a big backpacker, mountaineer or a, uh, a hiker, or was it a very big outside the boundary thing for you? Not really. Um, well, let me explain kind of what the experience is like. Um, the first of all, Mount Kilimanjaro, even though it does sound imposing, I mean, it's a 19,000 plus uh, thousand foot tall mountain. Um, it's actually very easy to climb if you compare it to other mountains like Denali or Everest or all those oh, absolutely. tall mountains in the Andes. You don't have to be a mountaineer. And I'm not a mountaineer. And there's no, I, there's no crevasses. And <laughs> no, it's, um, I mean, you do have to, and the thing too is with these groups, you, you actually have your, your core group of people, but then you have, we actually had a whole bunch of porters. Um, I think in Nepal, they'd be called Sherpas, yes. but they're local Africans who, work for the tour company and they carry the camp. So they had, you know, like a, a food or a, a kitchen tent. They prepare very good meals, actually. Um, I mean, I was surprised. It's not like, you know, you're just out there by yourself with your sterno and your beans and you pack in and pack out. So it's not really backpacking, although we did carry, I mean, I think we were limited to carrying about 20 pounds or so. And when you're going up you know, 17, 18,000 feet, you really don't want to carry a lot. It gets kind of airless up there. That's very true. Um, <laughs> but um, I'd say it's more of a hiking experience than so much a backpacking or a mountaineering experience. Yeah, for sure. So did you, so for me, and it's kind of funny, like I, I think sometimes I want to have this really, and I want, I want to pivot into some other places too. Um, I want to have this really authentic quote unquote experience usually when I travel. So there's this little part of my brain that, you know, whether it's like say backpacking, there's a part of me that's going to feel guilty. It's like, oh, cause you talked about having the porters and I always think that and go, oh, but I want to be like a real climber, whatever that means, you know? And 
rather than, you know, oh, they're going to, but everyone does that. And that's exactly how, how to do that. And it's incredibly hard to do that on your own. When I go to another country, I go to Japan, I want to hang out with Japanese people and just like, you know, absorb in the culture versus doing the tourist thing. But at the same time, it's like, that's not bad because sometimes you want a vacation and go on the tour bus. You want to go to London and go around on the double decker and see the sights. Can you tell me a little bit about your take after all your traveling between the back alley culture versus the kind of the tourist spot? Do you gravitate towards one versus the other or is there blessing in both of them? Tell me what we should be looking at in that aspect. Well, I think there's, like you say, there's a blessing in both uh, types of travel. I think, I think when you take a trip, the main thing is to kind of set some intentions of what you want the outcome to be. I mean, I think if you accept, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and do some of the tourist things because, you know, everyone does it, um, definitely do it. Um, at the same time, if you know your intention is to have some genuine experiences with local people that's not you know from the bubble of being in like a tour bus or something then definitely make plans to to have time for that too um it, it kind of depends on what country you're in too like if you're in the united states and canada and you're american like like we are it's pretty easy to just drive all over the country and just get out say hello to people and walk around and experience the local culture if you're in a country like Tanzania, um, it is so different in the, you know, social uh, economic conditions are so different that it is really good to just have a trusted local with you to kind of take you around, help you with the language barrier. And um, I, I actually did that myself. Um, I'll give you I'll give you an example. Um, we were staying at a hotel in Moshi and at first I was a little put off because I mean, it had, you know, all kinds of security and gates and walls and stuff. Um, you know, partly just because, you know, the, the fact that Tanzania, you know, people, you know, are living off of, you know, like $2 a day, you know, they talk about, you know, the, the UN statistics on how many people live on $2 a day. Well, you see these folks in places like Tanzania and, um, so there, there has to sort of be this barrier at one level. But then um, I got one of the uh, staff just to just to take me around. And I said, I don't want to go to like a, a restaurant where all the tourists go. I want to just go to a locale and try this brew called banana beer. They actually brew beer out of bananas. And um, there's actually lots of bananas that are grown in Tanzania. And um, so literally, he just took me. We, we went together into a locale. All the local people were were first kind of shocked because I I do not look like the local populace <laughs> at all, and you know it was kind of cool because they were just more curious. And my uh, my new friend and I just sat down and we shared a big um, mug of this uh, wonderful home brew and uh, chatted for a while. And I just thought to myself, now this is exactly how it should be. You know, I'm just hanging with the local people. And um, similarly, when I was walking up Kilimanjaro, um, we had guides and we had porters. And I learned, I went, I actually went through, uh, I think it was Rosetta Stone um, Swahili courses because Swahili is. What a great the, idea. Yeah. Swahili is the primary language in Tanzania. And uh, I, I just picked up some phrases, just some fun phrases. And so I would talk to the porters a little bit and try to break the ice with some Swahili. They really 
appreciated that. And it was actually nice. He could just carry on conversations with them for a while. And um, also got exposed to uh, local people called the Maasai who are, um, I guess they're described as nomadic. They, they just lives out, live out on the savannas of Tanzania. And um, some of it was a little touristy, but then sometimes you got to get away and just talk to these folks, just kind of one-on-one, not, you know, because you're buying something from them. Right, or, right. You know, going to, you know, some of the tourist stuff, but it's more just, hey, it's just you and me. Let's talk a little bit. And I really love those uh, type of experience, especially. Yeah, I, I, again, I, I've always gravitated towards that, but I, I've learned that I like a little bit of a balance. Like um, we used to do a, a retreat every year in Fiji for uh, for work. So I put on this uh, um, this week-long event. And part of it is getting into the culture with the people and going into the villages and helping farm and fish and like just everything, right? Like really getting that village feel. And it's awesome for like, say, out of a week, I'd like to do five days like that. But then I love to cap off a vacation where we stop at a five-star resort <laughs> and have the last day or two, just like, you know, this beautiful, amazing place. And it's just a nice way to kind of retreat back home. Um, I like to have both. Let's get into some travel hacks. Um, you, okay. You've learned a lot about, of course, along your way. And you you wrote the book, uh, Leave Me Alone, I'm on Vacation. And a lot of that, it's... A, when I met you, I told you I laughed out loud, and I love that title. I think that's one of the best book titles I've heard in a very long time. Leave me alone. I'm on vacation. It's available on Amazon, wherever you get books. Um, and <laughs> in there, a lot of the book is about how to avoid the lines, how to avoid the crowds. So let's start with this. Let's say there's something I want to see that's fairly famous. I want to go to Mount Rushmore. I want to um, go to the pyramids. I don't know. Something that there's usually a bunch of people. What are some th- things that I want to consider and think about when planning that trip? So I don't get caught up just standing around like I'm waiting for a Disneyland ride my whole life because that can be miserable, right? That's not that's not why you went is just to stand around and, and be stuck somewhere. So what are some things I should plan on to help me have a better time at a famous place or a busy tourist place? Well, let's see. I think the biggest thing is that people have patterns. Um, the thing to do is to basically recognize what the patterns are of visitation for a place. Um, that that is kind of twofold. One is that you're you're aware that you know there's a peak season and then uh, off season and then in the middle there's a shoulder season, which I think is the best time to shoot for because sometimes places have off seasons for a very good reason. It might be that the climate is unbearable because it's a very cold place or a very hot place. Um, it it might involve the fact that any services you might want or the um, things you want to see are actually closed and not even available during off season. So what you want to do, first of all, is kind of figure out when is the high season, when is the shoulder season, when is the off season, and then maybe gravitate towards the shoulder season, because then you've got a pretty good balance between there not being as many people, but still enough services that you can still enjoy it. Um, the second part I think is just the average day for a person um, who's on vacation. Um, I find that if you wanna go see a place, get there as early in the morning as you can. If it's like a national park, get there right before sun up, And so you can start looking around when the sun comes up. Um, I find that there are actually usually few, very few people around at sunrise uh, compared to say, mid-morning. 
another big advantage, if especially if you're in uh, more wildernessy areas, is animals tend to be out more. You know, and some people are kind of concerned. Oh, I don't want to run into a bear or anything. But you know, it's but you kind of do. Also, you kind of well, do. some people do. Yeah, but you know, it's like uh, you know, and and another piece too is um, be aware of when people take meals um, and how they take meals. Um, a lot of times, I find also with national parks that. If you go there at dinner time, that there's usually not very many people, like an hour or two, maybe before they close the park. Because a lot of times people will, you know, especially if they have families with kids and, you know, how how noisy kids can be. Um, they usually seem to get up and get out around nine or ten in the morning. And then by about maybe two or three in the afternoon, the kids are tired, they're hungry. And then the parents have to go take them back, you know, to the hotel or the restaurant. And then usually the parks empty out. So being aware of those patterns, I think is the biggest hack as far as trying to avoid crowds. If you're trying to visit a specific place and then that's really, really, really good. Is, and just to point yeah. out, especially you're talking about like a national park and I'll, I'll speak to Yosemite. Have you been up there yet? I haven't had the pleasure yet. I really want to visit it though. Yeah. It, well, I guess growing up in California and being a climber, it was sort of the, you know, the Mecca, so to speak. And one of the little things that I learned about it, at first I went up and I thought, this is amazing, but they turned it into Disneyland, you know, where it's like, there's, you can't even drive in now. It's so busy and they bust people around. And it's this thing where it's beautiful, but the experience can be really terrible. So I tell everyone when they're going to go, what my little thing is instead of camping and staying in the valley in Yosemite proper, it's it's a camping in a parking lot. So instead, go you can still be in the national park boundary, but go outside and stay at a place like Tuolumne Meadows or some spot that's, you know, 15 miles away. And you camp in this beautiful area. It's gorgeous. And then you drive in and spend a day in the park and go see everything you want to see. See El Capitan, go do Half Dome or whatever your your pleasure is. But then don't hang out there and eat in the park and hang in the park and stay there all the time. Get back outside. So it's that that kind of aspect of you don't have to live and breathe in the place where the tourist thing is. Right. Yeah, I mean, that that sounds like a really good tip. Um, you know, do you want to go eat at the cafe that's at Mount Rushmore? Like, you know, there's always a cafe that's like 10 times the price that's right at the base of things. So what, what you're saying is if you plan a little bit, you could eat early and then while everyone's having dinner you're watching and walking around or they're having lunch and you're enjoying the sights and then when they come back off of lunch then you're heading off somewhere else and you can go <laughs> go eat or enjoy yourself what, well actually i talk a little bit about eating in the book um oh yeah that's right yeah let's I, get to that so what, what are well, what, what I re- some what, plan some plan some meal plan hacks there we go yeah so what i would recommend primarily is definitely take advantage of any local uh, grocery stores and have the ability to store, you know, refrigerated goods, like have a, have a cooler. And um, that way, if you're at the site, you don't have to go back out and find a place that provides a meal, like a cafe, like you mentioned, an overpriced cafe or a restaurant outside the park. But you can simply go to one of the picnic areas, <clears throat> excuse me, and enjoy your own meal. And, and the nice thing too, sort of from a health perspective, is it allows you to be a little bit more in control of what you're eating. If you're um, concerned, you know, about the healthiness of what they offer at the park. Very good. So stop by some local grocery stores, find a way to do that. Let's talk about, um, transportation a bit. You know, the world has changed over the last, I mean, honestly, even just like five years from taxis to Ubers to rental cars. Do you have a preference in 
for how you're getting around. So you're going to fly in somewhere. Can we talk about anything that you want to get into as far as um, airport kind of hacks and secrets and tips to get through airports? Well, I used to, I mean, kind of live and breathe in airports quite a bit. Um, I was, I'd spend more on luggage than I would on a car because I'm in the airplane more than I am in my car at home. So I have my own little ways and what I figured out, but I want to get to a travel expert like you and go, how do you get through an airport? Um, and is there a way to which airports to pick once you land? How do you deal with land travel? Do you prefer Ubers at this point? Is there anything at all you want to get into for whether it's time ease or uh, avoiding lines or even prices? I know that was a lot okay. in there, but I just want to pick your brain. There's a lot to unpack yeah. there. <laughs> I just want to pick your brain and say, you tell me where you want to get into that. But just in general, the getting around airports, travel, uh, driving piece. Okay, well, let me, let me start with driving. Um, I generally prefer to drive than to fly. Um, sometimes it's simply not practical to drive because of big distances or crossing oceans. Um, I, I personally- Well, wait till not. Elon Musk comes out, man. If, if the boring company right. might just get through the Atlantic, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I really don't like commercial flying at all. I mean, if I had the means and the uh, resources, I would definitely choose private flying over commercial flying any day of the week. All right, you heard it first, guys. If you're an entrepreneur, private jet, top of the list. Well, and the thing, too, I've learned that, and I've never done this, so <laughs> disclosure here. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> but in talking to other entrepreneurs who can do this, um, it's actually cheaper to rent a private plane than to own a private plane. So you can actually have a timeshare where you share a pilot and a, I don't know, like a Learjet amongst, you know, 10 or maybe, you know, maybe less, like five different people. So it's more expensive, obviously, than commercial. And you know, it, it's not as accessible as having your very own plane, but it's kind of a happy medium between the two. So that's one hack I heard when, you know, you get to be at the point where you can afford something like that. Um, getting to, well, let's say, okay, now you, let's say you can't afford a, to share or buy a private plane. Let's just say. And <laughs> let's just say, and you're using commercial air travel. Um, you know, the, the, I think that the trick, let me try to think of how I, I deal with them. Well, the first thing I do is I make sure that I have everything in my luggage packed away and nothing open when I'm um, going through security. Like if I take a watch off or if let's take a cell phone out of my pocket, I pack it into like a flap of my um, bag so it doesn't get lost. Um once you've done this a few times, it kind of becomes a system. So I know exactly when to whip out my driver's license, when to pack it away. Um, I use, um, um, what's it called? TSA pre, um, pre-check. That is oh yeah. Pre-check. I think it's called, yeah, that's it. And, um, it's, I think it costs like 50 bucks and it gets you access. Maybe it's more like a hundred. I forget, but it's, um, it's you what five. Is it it's, it's, yeah, it's like 70 or 80, something like that. Yeah, but it's for five years. Yeah, yeah. And so it, the way I, I describe it is it allows you to travel, do air travel the way it was in the 1990s or earlier before you had to worry about all of the extra security restrictions, like taking off your shoes. It actually goes pretty smoothly. Um, I mean, you still obviously have to have your bag scanned and you have to walk through a metal detector. 
But apart from that, you don't have to go through that weird machine that scans your body and you don't have to take your shoes off. Um, the only thing I'll say, though, is it's become so popular that sometimes the lines for pre seem to be about as long as the ones for the standard check check in. But um, it, it goes faster because there's less formality, it seems, um, going Pre. Yeah, way less formality. I, I can't imagine not doing that. I used to, I, I'd go around with a buddy of mine sometimes he'll, um, like as a film crew and like when it, we go do a TV spot or, or go speak or something and it sounds kind of funny, but you have this, you know, following along. So he's got two bags full of camera equipment and tripods and recorders and mics and all this stuff. <laughs> and he wasn't pre-check at the last time we went. So we switched. So shout out to Josiah. This is a funny story. And I grabbed his bags. He took mine. Don't tell TSA. But so I walked through pre-check with all of that camera equipment. And literally it was like a big backpack and a big carry-on packed full of electronics. And you he had to pull out um, everything. He probably pulled out 12 different items when he had to go. And then they just whizzed me right through in 10 seconds. Um, but yeah, talk about uh, talk about a lifesaver is there. And the last, let me do a quick, yeah. let me do a couple qu- more quick ones real quick. Yeah, let's do, um, let's water. do some rapid fire ones. Give me the, okay. Rapid, rapid fire, fire water, water, have your water bottle, empty it out, go through security. When you're in the secure part of the airport, fill it up. Sometimes they have, um, water, um, things for water bottles. That way you can have water. That's one, one trick to get through TSA and have water on the plane because you might get thirsty. Um, and um, let's see, another one is when you're selecting a seat, if you're flying on something where you can choose your seat and you're not assigned a seat, I like to go like with Southwest, I'll just give as an example. I like to go in the B section because um, they let all of the little kids on before you immediately. And so what you can do is pick your seat to make sure you don't have someone kicking your seat um, behind you. Oh my gosh. That's my, that's my Southwest hack. Dude, that's amazing. Because especially I fly Southwest all the time. So I end up usually in whatever priority something. And so I'm thinking, hey, I'm going to be in the first few rows. That's nice. But go in the B's because they do all the A's, then the families. And then, you know, where all the kids are (laughs) and you can be like, I'm I'm not going to go next to, you know, I love babies, but I'm not going to go next to the screaming baby. That's brilliant. Or I hate seat kickers, kids who are about three or four and their legs are just long enough to kick the back of your seat. Mm, very good. All right. What, what about driving? I know we asked about that. And as we kind of wind down here, tell me a little bit about um, whether, again, rental car, taxi, Uber, what have you found that is a great way to get around once you're on the ground somewhere? Well, if you're talking about cost, if you're willing to drive to the destination and see sites along the way, just take your own car. Um, the only other thing you might consider is renting a car for the whole trip, especially if it's like a business trip, because then you're not putting miles on your own car. And if there's some other organization that's reimbursing you for travel, then you definitely want to do a rental car, even if it's from your house to the place of work, um, because you're not putting miles on your own car. That's, that's smart. That trick. That's smart. Um, and they're going to reimburse you as, anyway. And as far as Ubers, I, I think it really depends. If I were in a large city uh, and was staying in that city, I would definitely rely on public transportation and Ubers and not a car. Like uh, I think of San Francisco and Manhattan yes. as examples where you do not want to bring your own car. Yeah. You don't even realize too. Sometimes I'll, yeah, I'll go to um, like, I go to Chicago and I think, Oh yeah, Chicago's a big town, but depending on where you're staying, I go to like a courtyard Marriott, but it's in downtown and I rented a car. I drive over 
Oh, no, actually, I have my own car because I live three hours away. So I drive in thinking, hey, this is smart. I don't have to fly. But then the car parking was like $68 a night. And all of a sudden, it's like, man, I could have flown Ubered for cheaper and I wouldn't have to drive around the downtown. So <laughs> just the, that's a the very good parking point, fees in Manhattan and Chicago and places like that are crazy. Yeah. So you want to consider in a big city, how much is it going to cost you to store your car at the hotel? That's a very good consideration because as you say, sometimes a inexpensive airfare might be cheaper and then it's easier to fly an Uber awesome. or taxi. Or so Michael, last couple of questions uh, and we're going to let you get moving on the day. I want, this has been really enjoyable, very insightful as well. Um, and guys, you can follow Michael. He has a great Facebook group. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, tell me about your Facebook group, how to follow you, um, where to find out more about you. And certainly leave me alone. I'm on vacation. How to avoid the lines, crowds and noise experience travel your way is the book. So guys, you got to check out the book. These are some of the tips in the book. There's so much more in it from start to finish on your travel experience. Uh, Michael, where can we find out more about the book and you? Well, I think the best place to reach out to me is at my website, which is travelyourwaytoday.com. And then you can find out information about the book. I've got a blog there. Um, and then I think you mentioned on social media, I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. So if you search under travel your way or travel your way today, you'll find me pretty quickly there as well. Travel your way, travel your way today. Awesome. So last couple of questions, Michael is one is, um, do you have any travel regrets? And I don't mean like a whole life regret. I usually ask a question regarding that with someone, but I want to know, is there ever, has there been a trip that looking back, you go, man, knowing what I know now, I would have done that trip very differently. Um, I probably think of the uh, trip we did to Disney World back when I was 15. Now, the thing is, is my parents surprised us with a Christmas Disney trip. And um, here's the thing. I, I don't think I would go to Disney around Christmas time. I would probably <laughs> go. I would probably go in January. Um, I've actually learned. I've got a very good friend uh, from Florida who's a native Floridian. She gives me all kinds of Florida tips. Um, Florida it's, it's almost like it's always high season, but there are dips in the high season. And one would be right after the holidays in January when the kids go back to school and before probably like the first week in March when you pick up again for spring break. So there's sort of a little bit of a sweet spot in January, February that you might want to target uh, Florida theme parks. And the other thing too, is it really pays to invest in some kind of special pass that gets you through the lines quicker. I mean, I know some people just hate the idea of having to pay more for that, but it's kind of a matter of investing um, either your time or a little bit more money and what is more precious to you. Very good. And then what's uh, last question is what's somewhere, what's a vacation that's on the radar for you? What's something that you personally are really either planning or looking forward to or, or would desire to do soon? Someday I'd really like to visit Cuba. It's, it's just such a, a vibrant island. And maybe it's also because as an American, we've been told, you know, for years and years that we're really not allowed to go forbidden there. Forbidden fruit. The, forbidden fruit, yeah. But also just the fact that it seems to have such a vibrant culture and wonderful um, food and people, um, from, you know, from what I've seen with other people's experiences, that, that, that one's very attractive to me. Well, you heard it here. Michael's going to go to Cuba one day. We'll see how that works. That's going to be fun. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. I sure appreciate your time, buddy. Thank you very much.
All right, guys, that's the show for this week. And man, so I, you know, I hope that you uh, you have a chance to get out there and travel. Remember, the book is called Travel Your Way. Uh, sorry, it's TravelYourWayToday.com is the website. And follow Michael Ferguson at Travel Your Way Facebook group, Travel Your Way on Instagram. And the book is called Leave Me Alone, I'm on Vacation. So go to TravelYourWay.com and go check out his book. It really is quite uh, quite an interesting read, a lot of great travel tips, and a good travel blogger to, to connect with and, and stay with. Remember, you can find me everywhere at Matt Browning on social media. You can find photos of me traveling on planes with my family, hanging out with my son Val, whatever you want to see, business stuff, speaking things. Um, keep up with me in the life and the podcast at Matt Browning, B-R-A-U-N-I-N-G on everywhere. And check out this radio show, of course, on demand. Get anywhere where you get podcasts. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review if you haven't already. If you like the show, that makes a ton of difference for us. I appreciate you. Get out there this weekend. Stay driven. Do what you do. That is our new tagline. Stay driven. All right. I'll see ya. Bye.